Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 80. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 16 through 19 in the first book of Kings and follow the consideration of spectacle and showmanship with media maven David A.M. Walensky. Every time I see the name Yehu ben Hanani, which is more often than one would think, I think of Jeru the Damaja, the early 90s rapper whose album The Sun Rises in the East solidly places as one of my top 50 hip-hop albums. But that's where the similarity ends. Yehu ben Hanani foretells the downfall of Basha, the third king of Israel, because, you guessed it, he, quote, went in the way of Yeravam and led my people Israel to offend, to vex me with their offenses. And then there is yet again this curious phrase about Basha, where the text asks, quote, Are they not written in the book of the Acts of the Kings of Israel? Well, apparently not. This phrase will appear three more times in this portion. Elah succeeds his father, but he is not long for the throne, for within two years he is assassinated while in a drunken stupor by Zimri, the commander of the chariot corps. Yes, I have smoked crack cocaine. But no... Do I? Am I an addict? No. When have you have I tried it? Um, probably in one of my drunken stupors, probably approximately about a year ago. There's been times when I've been in a drunken stupor. That's why I want to see the tape. I want everyone in the city to see it. Was that Rob Ford joke a little too soon? Anyway, Zimri is a thorough man. He has every man, woman, and child who might avenge Elah killed, thus eliminating the whole house of Basha, Michael Corleone style. which also fulfills Yehu's prophecy that the dogs and scavengers will feast on his relations. Yum. Except Zimri's rule is even shorter than Elah's, more like a week. Omri, commander of the army, usurps the throne from Zimri, but not before Zimri locks himself inside the king's palace at Tirzah and sets it on fire, killing himself. But it seems within days of Zimri's death, another strongman, Tibni Ben-Ginat, also tries to seize power. But Omri, being the stronger strongman, consolidates his power. Omri will be king for 12 years over Israel, but he too does evil in the eyes of God. And when he dies, his son Ahab, or Ahav, ascends to the throne without violence or drama. Fun prophecy fact. It was during the early years of Ahav's reign that a certain Chiel from Bet-El decides to rebuild the walls of Jericho. And as Yehoshua, as in the book of Yehoshua, predicted, the builder's eldest son would die when he lays down the foundation, and the builder's youngest son would die when the gates are finally installed. Ahav, as wicked and as idolatrous as he is, will reign for 22 years, and he will face down God's prophet Eliyahu in what will be regarded as the most spectacular example of biblical showmanship ever. 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 ever, It all begins with a drought that Eliyahu decrees on God's behalf and a subsequent manhunt by the angry monarchs of Israel which sends the prophet into hiding. At first, he hides in a cave and is fed by the ravens. But when the water runs out, he seeks refuge out of the country in the town of Tzorfat, where a near-starving widow takes him in. After a few handy food-related miracles, 
one of which involves the wondrous resurrection of the widow's dead son, Eliyahu returns to Israel to announce the end of the drought. But the announcement will not take place in camera. It will take place in the context of a grand showdown. On Mount Carmel, between Eliyahu, the lone surviving prophet of God, against the hundreds of prophets of Baal and Asherah, that the king and queen keep well-fed in the palace. The spectacle involves a near offering and a lot of smack talk. After preparing two altars and two near offerings, which god will come down from on high and set the near offering alight? Which god will reign supreme? Eliyahu is no stranger to smack talk. He chastises the assembled people, quote, How long will you keep hopping between two crevices? If it's the Lord God, go follow him. And if it's Baal, go follow him. And so he lets the prophets of Baal go first. They choose the animal, prepare it, and call out to Baal. They begin to dance around the altar, and Eliyahu shouts to them, quote, Call out in a louder voice, for he is a god. Perhaps he is chatting, or occupied, or off on a journey. Perhaps he's sleeping and will awake. And when Eliyahu says occupied, some have translated this to mean occupied as in like the washroom is occupied. Ooh. So the yelling and dancing and even ritual cutting goes on for a while and eventually it's Eliyahu's turn and he instructs someone from the audience to come forward and pour four jugs of water all over his near offering. Not once, not twice, but three times. So much water that it fills a trough he had dug around the base of the altar. And then he calls out to God, quote, Answer me, Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and this is you who turned their hearts backward. And the fire comes down and burns up the near offering and the wood and the stones and the ground and boils off the water in the trough. And that, I guess, settles that. Oh, and then there's the thing where he tells the people to grab the prophets of Baal and take them down into the valley. And then Eliyahu murders all of them with his bare hands. Damn! Ahab quickly departs from the scene, not because he's in danger, but because Eliyahu tells him it's about to rain. Chapter 19 finds the king recounting all that has happened to the queen, who sends out some boys to take care of Eliyahu once again, which forces Eliyahu once again to flee. This time in hiding, he speaks with God, who guarantees his safety and charges him with some prophetic business and the anointing of kings. Eliyahu departs and on the way assumes a protege, Elisha ben Shaphat, a man who will become increasingly important to our story as the book of King unfolds in future chapters. Thus ends the summation and beginneth the consideration with our very special guest, David A.M. Walensky. David A.M. Walensky told me that he has worked in Jewish nonprofits since he was 14 years old and in Jewish journalism since completing university. I've read his stuff in the Forward, Gothamist, as well as the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. He's currently an assistant editor at J Weekly, the Jewish newspaper of the San Francisco Bay Area. Thank you for joining Tanakhcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you wanted to talk about Eliyahu. Yes. So what, partic- what attracts you to Eliyahu as a... As a- as a figure, as a prophet? Well, he's, there's, there's two things that I like about him. One is I, I like that he, I like it, I like it when all, any of the, the prophets get into these sort of grandiose displays mm-hmm. to make their point. And as we'll talk about, Eliyahu has by far the best grandiose display to make a point in the history of grandiose displays to make points, I think. Mm-hmm. But the thing uh, is that he, he, 
didn't start off with a grandiose display. True, true. The stuff that he's been saying has been having no impact. Uh huh. After uh, attempting to just, you know, talk folks into it, he decides instead to go out and, and sort of, you know, do this whole bizarre sort of sacrificial contest in front of a live studio audience with a bunch of, you know, prophets from this other religion and blah, blah, blah. And it's, I mean, it's an, it's, it's an interesting change and it's an interesting reversal from, hey guys, you know, we should really blah, 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 to then switch to this sort of big, uh, you know, staged, fantastical event. And then, you know, not in this, not in this story, but much, much later in history, he goes through this like third character, second character transformation and turns into like the Santa Claus of Passover. And so, you know, those first two versions of him are, are clearly really connected. That third version of him almost feels like, oh, well, here's a completely different guy who happens to have the same name. <laughs> well, we'll get into that in a minute. I'm, I'm very curious about your your sense of, I mean, you know, we, we, he basically appears without any kind of build up. You know, there's no... Um, you know, burning bush moment where a, a you know he's sort of plucked out of the minor leagues and brought up to the majors. He just he just is the prophet, and then he, as you said, he tries to convince people to change their behavior and not worship Baal. And they don't listen to him, or maybe that's even just implied. But he announces this drought, and then he kind of runs for his life and hides out in a cave. Do you want to talk a little bit about the the face off itself, like the mechanics of the face off? That's that's so oh. that's so attracted that's so you know so interesting to you. Yeah. Oh man, it's great. It's great. It's there's a much more familiar, if somewhat similar, thematically similar event much earlier in the Bible. There's is this you know tiff between like Moses and Aaron and the the Pharaoh's magicians or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Where they sort of get into this like you know magic display contest. Yeah. Like, who can do the coolest trick? I can. Proof that my God is the real one. And this takes that to like a whole new level. That it's it's you know it almost feels like you know a pissing match between this this one lone prophet and this this whole gang of prophets of Baal and Asherah. And uh, essentially, he says, you know, let's both let's both do this you know a ritual sacrifice. And we'll, we'll see who's as cooler. We'll see who's worked. But it's not uh, just that. I mean, if that was it, that would be pretty impressive. But it, get, it goes to even one, to a level even more, you know, trash talky than that. Yeah, yeah. Let's look at some 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 wording here because there there is some great dialogue here. Mm-hmm. Right. He says he says I'm the only prophet of of God left. I'm reading from the JPS translation, by the way. Mm-hmm. While the prophets of Baal are 450 men, let two young bulls be given to us. Okay, and then he says, oh, great, we'll, uh, you know, we'll butcher it, we'll cut it up, we'll dress it up nice, and but we won't, we won't light them on fire yet. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, and I won't apply fire either. Then you invoke your god by name, I invoke my god by name, and we'll agree. <laughs> I like this. And we'll agree that whoever responds with fire... That one is God. <laughs> you think? It's, it's, it's terrific. Oh, literally, and it shall be. I, this is a great translation, though. 
and we'll just agree that I'm right at the end. And then and then the people answer, very good. They're like, great, a pillar of fire is going to descend. This should be cool. The, the outcome is sort of a foregone conclusion, I think. Well, if, a lot, if Eliyahu had failed, I don't think it would have made it into the, into the text. Right, yeah, how many other grandiose prophetic displays were cut? Oh, to only have that footage off the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah, I wish my Tanakh came with deleted scenes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's um, the, I think in the DVD extras they have those. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's just it's it's this great big event, and it's it's always really fascinated me. And what I there are two things I like about it. One is I like it for the same reason that I've come only in the last few years to really appreciate a certain bit of the Yom Kippur service. Mm-hmm. Why? You, well, if you go to a certain sort of synagogue for Yom Kippur, there's this bit where whoever's leading the service sort of like impersonates the high priest. Mm-hmm. And I guess I've only I've only really experienced this at uh, Hadar in, in New York. But what happens there is, is this guy, Arya, who leads that part of the service. And I mean, he is like jumping up and down and moving around and there's choreography. And it just suddenly has this totally different feel from any sort of everyday modern Jewish ritual, it mm-hmm. suddenly is performative rather than mumble. Right. And I always find those sorts of moments really transporting. And, uh, you know, even just to, to read them described, you know, as we do here in, 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 in chapter 18, I just find it so powerful and so interesting. And then the other reason that I love it is, you know, to me, the most interesting kind of, of Bible study is to get into the cultural context and the anthropological context mm-hmm. uh, of the time, because I think that stuff is often the least obvious and the least accessible when you read it. Very little of that stuff is on the surface of the text, mm-hmm. uh, because it is, well, it's been, it's been edited and the con, you know, the cultural context was not so important to the editors. And also, we just have these sort of notions about what an Israelite is, what they thought of their God in those days, and these sort of things that may or may not have any sort of historical accuracy to them. And so, to get into the the context of their mindset and like the intellectual history of their culture up mm-hmm. to that. And, and trying to sort of leave aside the intellectual history of our culture up to this point, you suddenly, I just, suddenly everything becomes way more interesting to me. And this chapter is great for that because we've got lots of sort of tantalizing hints of what the intellectual and religious life of the ancient Near East was at this time, right? Where does this happen? It, they, they, do, they, they do this whole sort of sacrificial contest on top of a mountain. That's interesting because that is one of those sort of shared cultural assumptions of everybody in the, in, in the region at the time is that you're going to have a big ritual event, got to go and do it up on a mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, we like throughout the Bible, it'll mention things like, you know, the, the high places or the heights right. are used almost as a synonym for, you know, shrines or temples. Absolutely. Right, and this is a great example of why that is. And then on top of that, you have Baal, and there's 450 prophets, 450 prophets of Baal 
and 400 prophets of Asherah. Well, who are, who are Baal and Asherah? That becomes a really interesting question to me. And actually, while I was preparing to talk about this, and I pulled uh, a few books off my shelf that I hadn't looked at since college, and I took this great class called Archaeology of Ancient Canaan and Israel. And one of the books we had for the class is called Ancient Canaan and Israel, an Introduction by Jonathan Golden, who was my professor. Oh. Yeah. He actually, he hadn't offered the class in years, but his book had just been reissued in paperback, so he offered it that year. Uh, so there's some great stuff in this book about who these gods are and what is their relationship to the Hebrew gods and, and what is the relationship between these two seemingly oppositional religions. But what I find so fascinating about some of the material in this this book and from that class is that it may not really have been two different religions. There's a lot of tantalizing archaeological evidence in the form of this phrase God or or Yudhe and his Asherah. That phrase uh, uh, appears for real in the archaeological record as an inscription. Mm-hmm. And that's that phrase is really shocking if all you know about Asherah is that 400 of her prophets were involved in this showdown with Elijah. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's tons of debate about what it means for God, right? His Asherah, what does that mean? You know, one theory is that in an earlier version of our own religion, she was his consort or his wife. So that kind of stuff is really fascinating to me. And then you know, what does this story reflect in that light? It reflects a, a huge sea change in the way this religion works, right? If you think about it that way, suddenly it's not just Elijah preaching against this foreign or heretical religion. It becomes a, a reformist polemic about sweeping away certain impurities within our religion and, you know, and getting to the basics and moving toward, you know, real sort of what we really think of as monotheism. That's, um, a, that's a constant uh, thing that Moshe harps on. Yehoshua, when before he dies, does yeah. a similar thing where he says, "Listen, everybody, you know, me and my family, we're going to follow God, but you can do whatever you want, but you know what's going to happen if you do." And all the judges and and then Shmuel, it's like this is a constant theme of it comes up of you know, I guess, product differentiation. You know, it's like this is like the the biblical version of the Pepsi challenge. Ah, uh, but not just product differentiation. There's this product you've been enjoying all these years, and suddenly. You can't have part of it anymore. That part's bad. It's it's almost, I don't know, a rebranding, a reboot? I don't know, right? Like, suddenly, the cast of characters is changing, and, uh, oh, we only have one character now, right? There were these other folks that you could pray to, but not anymore. There's another, I think, even more subtle and even more interesting possibility, which is that, and this is what uh, my paper was about in that class, the, the other possibility is that... It's not so much that they were, that these were two religions in opposition or that it was one religion that came to or one religion that swept the yahoos out. There may be a much more subtle thing here where one was the, the central governmentally sanctioned religion and one was a folksier version related with similar concepts and similar values, but that central religion is not very accessible to the people. And 
when you have religions, I mean, if you think about ancient Rome, you know, the super fancy temples of, of, of Jupiter were not accessible to the communists, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't for them. And so they found their spirituality and their religious nourishment uh, elsewhere in, you know, mystery cults or folk religions or eventually Christianity. And in this case, you know, one of the possibilities is that this Asherah is, or this Asherah-based cult or, or religious tradition is really more sort of in dialogue with our own or with the religion that comes to be our own. And that suddenly there's a big tone change where it goes from being okay for the folks to be doing their own sort of similar-ish thing, and suddenly it's not okay anymore, and uh, you have to leave the religion to us, the expert. You just sit back and watch. And, and that's interesting because here we have Elijah asking everyone to sit back and watch while he proves his big point, while he does this big, grandiose thing that proves that he's holy in a way that you can never be. He also is kind of a potty mouth. Well, yeah. That's something we tend not to expect from someone who's supposed to represent, you know, God and, you know, God's way. Well, I mean, it's something that maybe we don't expect, but... You know, I think that we are accustomed to a sort of a, a sense of refinement in language and manners in religious settings that, you know, a feature of some cultures, but not all. This is this is a big sort of outdoor, fiery mountaintop showdown. Why shouldn't there be colorful language? I mean, you can even go into, you know, any number of fiery evangelical churches today and hear some really interesting inflammatory sort of stuff from the pulpit. So maybe, you know, so maybe it's surprising for us because we're just sort of used to rabbis politely expounding upon the Parsha, but religious leaders at other times in other cultures have, have had much more colorful things to say. So let's have a look actually at the specifics of what goes on on the mountaintop and then sure. what happens in the fallout afterwards. Sure. So he he says, I'm going to, we're going to have these, this sacrifice. I'm going to have mine. You're going to have yours. You get to go first. And then they start calling out. Yeah. And uh, there's no response, obviously. Right. They, they invoke Baal from morning until noon, shouting, oh, Baal, answer us. They got nothing. So they performed a hopping dance. That's a great line. They performed a hopping dance about the altar that had been set up. And when noon came, Elijah mocked them. Shout louder. He's a god, after all. But maybe he's in conversation. Maybe he's detained. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and he'll wake up later. So they shout louder and they start gashing themselves with knives and spears, according to their practice. When noon passed, they, they kept raving. And still there's no sound. And none who responded... Or he did. And then Elijah comes in and says, okay, well, now that that ridiculous sideshow is over, let me show you how it's done. The thing that's, that, that always struck me as odd about that particular moment where he says to them, go ahead, you call first. 
didn't the priests of Baal and Asherah know? Like, was there ever any precedent in 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 the in the in the annals of Baal worship where Baal would shoot fire down from heaven to consume a sacrifice? Well, that's a great question. But I guess at the same time, I have to wonder. Okay, maybe the Bible is full of that sort of extraordinary dramatic deed by God. But, you know, I don't think that, that, that any of the assembled Israelites, like, have they personally experienced those? Or are those just stories? I mean, I think that everybody here, the Baal worshipers and, uh, you know, Elijah's folks, I think everybody here sort of expects God to be able to do this, even though maybe they've never seen proof of it themselves. Yeah, like regular folks would expect that. But, I mean, would the priests themselves, the guys, you know, the priests in the temple themselves, like – it just seems okay. like from the get-go, you know, this was a, this was a losing proposition because it's not like it's in Baal or Asherah's wheelhouse to perform these miracles. Well, it's interesting that you just used the word uh, priest because these guys, I don't think they are referred to as priests anymore. No, you're right. You're right. They're referred to as prophets, and that that is interesting because it makes me wonder if there if there's something analogous right about them with a prophet like Elijah common folks who who are called upon or feel called upon to to play this role i mean maybe this is just a rabble of a few hundred guys who claim to be uh you know prophets of baal right i mean maybe some of them are just like i don't know your friendly neighborhood like you know snake oil salesmen right they're mm-hmm. doing this, right doing a hopping dance about the altar Right, Elijah is not right. Like he's not grandiose and decked out in like priestly robes. I don't think. Right. So I, I think that that maybe you know he probably has a lot more in common with these folks than than we would assume with our own preconceptions about the story. And then he says, you know, uh, you know, you you're, you're clearly failing now. It's my turn. Uh, and, but I, before I begin, I want you to pour some water on top of the the altar. And he has them do this a number of times. They pour this tremendous amount of water, and then lo and behold, it's great. It's the classic way to begin a trick for a stage magician, right? Here, I need a volunteer to come up and do something which, if everybody here thinks about it, will totally prevent me from doing this trick that I'm claiming I'm about to do. Right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing up my sleeves. Now watch me pull something out of my sleeve. This wood is all wet. There's no way it'll burn. And then, poof, it burns. Which is a very tremendously successful, you know, execution of a trick. It's a tremendous execution of a trick. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It's, it's almost the kind of thing we have to wonder, you know, I, I always like it, just to go back for a second to, to, to Pharaoh's magician. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, I like using the word magician for them. In Prince of Egypt, the, the scene with the magicians is terrific because it sort of makes them out to be these sort of technical magicians who like know which powders to throw at the right times to cause the right effect. Mm-hmm. Perhaps Elijah and also uh, these these prophets of Baal and Asherah, like perhaps they have that kind of knowledge about the craft of magic, right? Like maybe, I don't know, maybe last time the prophets of Baal tried this, it worked. But this time, you know, Elijah sabotaged their stuff backstage, so it wouldn't work this time. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's like beyond the realm of possibility to say that these guys have caused something to 
apparently spontaneously combust before. But then there's the gr- so there's the great you know the great move the fire comes down the the sacrifice that uh, you thought would never burn burns. But then, right. but then that isn't the end of it. Well, no, of course not. So what so what sense do you make of that? What happens next? He goes through with it. The fire descends. Blah blah blah. Elijah says, "Great, uh, Lord alone is God. Lord alone is God." Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not a single one of them get away. They seize them all, and then they take them down to uh, Awadi and kill them all. Yeah, Elijah, Eliyahu kills them all with his with himself. That's, yeah. That... Yeah. Which, I gotta say, he must have been exhausted, because <laughs> there are... There's 400... There's 900 people here that he just slaughtered. And boy, are my arms tired. That's wild. And also, but this is interesting. If we take that figure of 900 seriously, which we probably shouldn't, but if we do, it's an interesting indication of how big Elijah's audience for this whole shebang is. He has enough people with him to, uh, to seize 900 of these guys and not let a single one of them get away. Well, I mean, if you're going to go to the trouble of having this big, you know, showdown, you got to have an audience. Right? I mean, it's incredible. People must be coming for miles. I mean, you, you, you made your point. You know, you, you shamed them. You, you you talked smack about Baal and Asherah while they were dancing around and hopping around. You then pull off the big trick, the big reveal, and, you know, everyone is, is blown away. Yay! You know, God is, is our God. But then he takes them all and these guys and has them killed. I mean, that, for me, that sounds like a little bit of an overreach, don't you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, in, in right in this biblical context, uh, what do we do with heretics? We kill them. Happens all the time. We're always killing heretics. The one thing that I think is interesting is that this isn't like, you know, this isn't a, a, a military engagement where we went out into the field of battle and slaughtered all the heretics. The thing that's interesting about this is they don't say anything. <laughs> These guys don't say anything after this display. They don't. Elijah doesn't doesn't say. Now you see what I'm talking about. My God is real. Now what do you think? He doesn't give them a chance to say. Oh yeah, sure. No, we're with you on that one now. Yep, we were wrong. They don't get a chance to say that. And that's. I mean, that's interesting to me, but I'm not quite sure what to make of it. You know, I think we're we're still we're still at this 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 stage of the Bible where we're not we're not talking uh, a whole lot about you know repentance or forgiveness. No, no way. <laughs> right, so we're still at a stage where heretics die at the end of the story. Which then brings us to the to the point you brought, you mentioned earlier is that how this same guy ultimately becomes this kind of you know Passover Santa Claus figure, right. Which is wild. What what sense do you make of that transformation? How do you, you know? I mean, the, the rabbis, you know, there's all these they 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 they, they, they transformed Eliyahu from this mass murderer to you know Santa Claus, the Pesach Santa Claus. Why him? Do you think? Well, I mean, you know, the rabbis run in this very sort of specific direction with Elijah and their sort of expectations about his everlasting cosmological role, not only as the, the Passover Santa Claus, but also in a much more serious vein, I think, as uh, you know, the herald of the Messiah, right? Yeah. 
So how is it that he got assigned these two very different roles? Um, you know, or maybe they're not that different. I mean, maybe the fact that we keep calling him the Passover Santa Claus is coloring our assessment of what his role is on Passover. Passover certainly has its own sort of messianic themes toward the end of the Seder. So there's there's that thematic connection between him and the Seder. Uh-huh. But but beyond that, I've always been highly mystified by you know Elijah's visit to the Seder. I mean, I just feel like have we really for like yeah I don't know centuries now. I mean, have we really been doing this this trick where your goofy uncle steals a sip of the wine while you open the door? Yep. Like how long have we been at this? That joke. Um, you know, and what else is he doing there? He doesn't have anything to say to us. He just came for the booze. Very strange. Never known quite what to make of it. I mean, it almost just seems like here's, like I said before, here's a different guy who's also named Elijah. Yeah. You know, who also crops up throughout sort of, you know, Jewish folklore, right? There are all these, you know, great stories about, you know, Elijah coming to visit shtetl this or shtetl that and perform some miracle or the other. Well, he's the um, one, he's the wandering Jew. He, yeah, par excellence. Yeah. And he wanders from Seder to Seder. I keep saying the same thing. It is a very strange transformation, I think. But it makes him even more interesting, and I think it also makes this story even more interesting. I mean, the one sort of thematic connection is, you know, like I was saying before about how the more performative and less mumbled aspects of ritual Judaism have a sort of transporting effect on me, at least. You know, I think a lot of people talk about the Seder as the, well, first of all, it's the most widely observed ritual uh, in Judaism today. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to do with the fact that it is this sort of like powerful performative thing that enlists lots of your senses in a way that Elijah's religion often enlisted more senses than just, you know, sight and hearing. Sacrificial rituals were were commonplace. So the smell of burned meat, maybe the taste of incense, all that stuff is a familiar piece of religion for these folks. You know, for us, uh, you know, for modern Jews, it's not so much. And I think the Seder, by contrast, is this explosion of sensory overload. It's a discussion. There are prayers. There are smells, somebody's cooking the whole time, there's food, there's singing, and it's in this very different sort of setting that's really very different from sort of the normal modern Jewish ritual setting. And at least for me, thematically, that really harkens back to this story, which which shows us another example of that kind of uh, religious event that I don't, you know, that we don't get to see very often today. Yeah, and I guess so. In that sense, I guess that Elijah is the perfect uh, guest for that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that to me that that's the that's the only thematic connection, right, that I can find between this story and Elijah's, you know, appearance at the Seder for a sip of wine. For me, he is this character of sort of dramatic, you know, events. Well, considering how he dies or how he how he goes up to heaven on a fiery chariot, he he may well be the guy who's supposed to come to our seder. Right, and and someday, uh, according to the rabbis, he'll he'll be there for the most dramatic event uh, ever. Right, the, the arrival of the Messiah. He will be the herald. And so, you know, it is interesting. This guy who kind of comes out of nowhere, 
you know, oh, there's this guy, Elijah. Yep, he's a Tishabite um, and a Giladite. And he's going to be the prophet now for a little while. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. who is this guy? And why does he get all of the best moments? I mean, he gets all of these great scenes and great sort of big ritual experiences to be a part of, not only when he was alive, but still at Seder every year. Some guys have all the luck. Right? David Walensky, thank you so much. Dan Mendelson of you, thank you so much. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 81, when we conclude the first book of Kings, chapters 20 through 22.